This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Stacey Abrams says she's not campaigning to be Joe Biden's vice president. But if you ask her if she'd take the job or why she's qualified for it, she will not shy away from telling you. I'm Jesse O'Poyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about government and politics in Wisconsin. My guest this week is the former Georgia House Minority Leader and 2018 candidate for governor. Joining me to interview her is Cap Times politics reporter Brianna Riley. We caught up with Abrams about her voting rights group, Fair Fight, and what she thinks the rest of the country can learn from Wisconsin's spring election. We also discussed her Madison roots and, of course, the presidential election. Stay tuned. Abrams, thank you so much for taking some time to, to talk to us. Um, Madison, to you're, you're in Georgia, correct? Is that right? I am. All right. Um, how are you holding up and, and coping with all of all of this, all of this chaos right now? You know, things are good, relatively speaking, given that we have a governor who's trying to send people back into the wild without having done the necessary precautions. But I'm pleased that mayors uh, around the state and just thoughtful business leaders are saying we're not ready yet. Yeah, there's, I mean, certainly a lot of push and pull, I think, from state to state. We've kind of got the, almost the opposite here a little bit. Our governor is um, pushing for more restrictions and we've got a little bit of dissent. I'm sure you saw the protests at the the Capitol here last week. So it's been interesting. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I look at what happened in Hokkaido, Japan. There was a story this week about the fact that they did everything right. They followed the pr- protocols. They shut down for three weeks. They flattened the curve. And then they cautiously reopened and immediately experienced a second wave of COVID-19 infections. Until we know what works, I would rather we err on the side of caution because we know the consequences. Yeah, well, um, that all said, um, Jesse mentioned that there have been the protests here in Madison, and Madison has gotten a lot of news lately because, and a lot of national attention because we decided to hold our election. I, and many others, I think, um, didn't really know about your own Madison roots. Um, before we kind of d- dig into the national attention we've been getting, tell us about about your upbringing. You were born right here in Madison, right? How, how I was, long did you live in Wisconsin? I was born at Madison General Hospital. My mom was studying mom was studying to get a master in library science at the University of Wisconsin. My dad was working in the primate lab, uh, supporting helping support the family. I have an older sister who had, was born in Mississippi but uh, came of age there. And so I lived in Wisconsin until I was three. Important formative years. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I like to tell folks I remember two critical things. I remember cheese curds and being cold. Um, <laughs> Pretty much the, the whole experience. <laughs> but I also, I, I it was one of those young memories that I asked my mom about. I said, I remember sitting on the steps 
these wide marble steps and being a little chilly. And she said, how do you remember that? You were two. And it was, it was at the University of Wisconsin. <laughs> That's crazy. Do you still have family in the area? And do you get back to Wisconsin much? I do have family in the area. My mom's older sister had moved to Milwaukee when they were younger, when uh, she was uh, in her early 20s. And so I have cousins who live in Milwaukee. I've got family that's moved back and forth. But I've also been able to come when I was still a small business owner. One of my major projects was working with several states to build capacity for small businesses. And that brought me back to Madison. I was so excited to be there. And then I had planned to be back to help get out the vote for the Democratic Party in the Supreme Court race. But my trip got canceled by COVID-19. Still, Wisconsin is very close to my heart. And I get back there whenever I can. Um, have you been uh, relatively connected then with our, our state Democratic Party here? And, and what, what was that um, campaign effort going to look like for you? What did you envision your role kind of being here in, in Wisconsin, if, if all things had gone as planned? Sure. I launched Fair Fight 2020 in August of 2019 because we wanted to combat voter suppression across the country in all its forms. And of course, we didn't expect a pandemic to be one of the forms, but we knew voters would face unprecedented challenges. And one of the core states was making sure we were in Wisconsin. We had already funded a voter protection team on the ground in Wisconsin and other battleground states. We were in Michigan. I'd been to Minnesota. And we started early in the cycle, earlier than any previous cycle, because we wanted to make sure that we're ready for November. I've been able to get to know Chairman Ben Wickler, who's the chairman of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. And our voter protection director that Fair Fight supports at the Wisconsin Democratic Party is David Kronick. We were planning for me to come up and do what I try to do across the country, which is rally voters and remind folks that the right to vote is ours and no one should be allowed to take it away. But we've had to shift a little bit. And Wisconsin is just one of those battleground states that you've been working with, right? Um, how does Wisconsin differ from the others that you've you know, been involved in? Well, we are in 18 states this year. We did a handful of states in 2019, particularly the three states that had statewide elections. And for 2020, we are truly focusing on the 18 battlegrounds for the presidency, for the Senate, but also for down ballot races like governors and attorneys general, secretaries of state, and then state legislatures. And as you know, Wisconsin has faced one of the most extreme gerrymanders in the country. Wisconsin has also been the victim of a conservative effort to strip away voting rights. This is a state that was once known as the leader in voting rights and in workers' rights, and both have been stripped away, unfortunately, by your previous governor. What we know is that vote, voter suppression in Wisconsin has a very specific formula to it. It's voter ID laws. It's changes to who can show up and where. I mean, we saw what happened in Milwaukee when they just opened five polling places compared to 185. In Green Bay, it was down from 31 to two. We need states to take the measures necessary to protect voters. And unfortunately, Wisconsin has become the cautionary tale that we use. But what we also know is that because we had this team on the ground early, because the, the state party has done such an extraordinary job of reaching out and reaching deep, we were able to support the work. And it helped voters turn out despite unprecedented obstacles. We know that 
Five members of the U.S. Supreme Court did their best to put Wisconsinites in jeopardy, but you all prevailed and we congratulate you. Do you see, is there one level where there's a there's a failure that kind of resulted in, in this happening? Is it, I mean, I guess, how, how do you take the lessons learned here in Wisconsin and apply them so that other states don't end up in this situation so that Wisconsin doesn't end up in this situation and, and so this doesn't happen nationally in November? Sure. Wisconsin reinforced the responsibility we have to take careful measures now to ensure that voters can safely participate in November. Governor Evers did his best to try to meet the moment, but what we saw happen, the chaotic nature of response as things ping-ponged between the governor, the state legislature, and the courts is emblematic of why we have to plan now for November. Shifting elections is not something that can be done on a dime. And we know now that if we prepare in advance, we can reduce the risks that are associated with in-person voting, with absentee ballots not arriving and not being returned on time. And if we can do those two things, we can actually ensure safe elections. We know that the clerks in those cities in Wisconsin did their best, but they can only do what they can with the resources they're given. And they've got restrictive rules. In Wisconsin, again, the challenge with absentee ballots is when they have to arrive. Well, we knew that the delays in mail going out and coming in meant that there needed to be legal action taken. Because of the DPW and Mark Elias, we were able to extend the deadline for ballots to be received from Election Day to the following Monday. And that allowed for 100,000 more Wisconsin voters to make their voices heard. So as we think about it on a national scale, we know three things. One is that we have to provide for safe, secure, and accessible elections using the combination of vote by mail, in-person early voting, and in-person voting on election day. Number two, we need the resources that can come from federal funding to ensure that every single community can meet the needs of the election rather than having to constrain Oh, hey, it's Jesse uh, again. And unfortunately, right here is where we had some technical difficulties recording and we lost the third item on the list. So now is a really great time for a sponsor break. We'll be back in a minute. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. Um, so we, we're talking a lot about April 7th, right? And, and it is the most recent fight over voting in Wisconsin. But you touched on previously that voter rights and access have been at the center of political battles here in the state for about the last 10 years. Are there other things that concern you about access here? And how does Wisconsin compare to, to other states? In 2016, Wisconsin's new voter ID law disenfranchised thousands of voters. Uh, For example, there was a woman who was 100 years old who was born in in Missouri, had moved to Wisconsin, had voted in elections, had voted with an ID. And when the new voter ID law came online, what it required was that she provide her original birth certificate. But she, like thousands of Blacks vote born during segregation and during Jim Crow was not permitted to be born in a hospital. And therefore, she did not have an original birth certificate. She could show herself in the 1930 census. And for Wisconsin, that was insufficient. And she was denied the right to vote. That happened again and again. And it's proof that 
restrictive voter ID is not simply about improving security. It's actually about stripping people of their right to vote. We know that Wisconsin has been one of the states that has had challenges with absentee ballots because of their requirement that it arrive by election day, despite the fact that no one has the ability to control the delivery of mail. The gold standard is that it should be postmarked by election day. And that requires that Americans get used to not having instant results at the end of election day. But we also know that Wisconsin has been willing to restrict access to polling places, been willing to limit the days of early voting, and put limitations on students and their ability to cast ballots. The fact that you can use your student ID, but only if it conforms to essentially a driver's license, but the university system won't put the restrictions on the IDs means that we're catching the most vulnerable communities in an unwinnable vibes where if they want to participate, they have to meet rules that they cannot meet, which means there is really no intent for their participation. You obviously encountered a lot of issues in your own uh, race for governor in terms of <laughs> uh, voting rights and, and access in Georgia. Um, how did this, the two states compare in your mind? Do you see a lot of similarities there? Voter suppression happens in almost every state, but it is the most acute in those states that have seen a change in demography or a change in power. And, and that's what we really have to remember. This isn't about power. And in the 21st century, it's been a power grab by Republicans, by and large, because they've seen themselves losing elections on their ideas, and therefore they've shifted to trying to restrict access to the vote. And that happens across the country. And, and part of what has precipitated it is the fact that despite having federal laws that say we have the right to vote, every single federal law regarding voting delegates to the states the implementation. And so you're essentially saying to the state that is the bad actor, fix yourself and prove it to yourself that you fixed yourself. Somehow that doesn't work. <laughs> the reality is we have to recognize that we live in a country that was born with voter suppression, where only white men who owned property could vote from the beginning. But what's great about our country is that we have consistently tried to expand our access to meet our creed, that this is a democracy where every eligible citizen can participate, which is how I get to this. We have 50 different laws for how voting happens, but we have a single democracy Georgia was egregious in the fact that we had all of the, the hallmarks. We made it hard to register, hard to stay on the rolls, hard to cast a ballot, and hard to get your ballot counted. That's true in Wisconsin. The difference is how we play, how those pieces play out. But whether you're an American living in Wisconsin or Georgia, if someone is impeding your right to participate in a democracy, it is just as wrong, just as vile, and it has to be overtaken. Going from a gubernatorial race to potentially joining a national ticket is quite is quite the change, and that's the position you know you're you're kind of in right now. You're obviously a huge contender for vice president, but more than a year ago, you uh, had dismissed a report that you could be Joe Biden's 2020 running mate as he was entering the race. It's so funny how things have changed over over the last 13 months. But can you kind of reflect on that and talk to us about how we got to the point we're at right now? Well, let's remember a year ago. Vice President Biden was contemplating whether he might run. And I was asked the question, will you enter the primary as his running mate? And what I said was, you don't run for second place in a primary. But once the primary is done, that's the time to have this conversation. And I meant it then. I, meant, I mean it now. 
part of my responsibility as a legislator, as a business owner, as the daughter of ministers has been to be truthful. I tell the truth because I grew up in a community where politicians didn't always do that. They told you either what you wanted to hear or they didn't bother speaking to you at all. And so it is my belief that you answer questions when you're asked. But it's also my belief that Joe Biden has the right to pick whomever he would choose to be his running mate. If I'm asked the question, would I be willing to serve? My answer is an unequivocal yes. But I know he has no shortage of qualified candidates to look to. And I know his team is smart and they're going to make the right choice. What's different now is that I answer questions. But I've done that much to the chagrin of my campaign team. (laughs) I was the person who would stand on the stage long after they were waving me off because people want to know the truth. And the reality is we have a president who does not have a very strong relationship with the truth. We have a vice president and we have a Congress that on the Senate side has done a great deal to erode trust in our government. Every person who stands for public office contributes to how we are viewed as a nation. And my contribution is that I try to be forthright and candid, even with the hard things. It doesn't always benefit me. And sometimes my answers come out wrong. But my responsibility is to stand in the values I was raised with. And those values say that you tell the truth because the truth matters. It it is somewhat unusual, if not unprecedented, for someone to be really anything but coy about interest in the vice presidency or, or to do anything but say, you know, yes, I would, I would serve at best. But you, you are really presenting yourself as a, as a strong candidate and you're, and you're talking about your strengths. Um, are you, are you running for vice president or, or why have you decided to be so upfront about it, about your interests? Let's remember, I was brought into this national conversation in 2019 and the work that I do requires that I have conversations in public. I do not have control over the questions I'm asked. I So my response has been to answer the question. And if the question is, are you qualified? I answer that question. If the question is, are you willing to serve? I answer that question. That has been construed as something different other than just candor. But, but let's let's be clear. As a woman of color, as a person of color and a woman, and those are three separate things in our society. We are taught self-effacement, not humility. Self-effacement says, I can't, I won't, I shouldn't. Humility says, I can, but I'm not the only one. I can, but Vice President Biden has a surfeit of qualified women to choose from because he has said he's going to pick a woman and he has a team that will do what they need to do to make sure he has the best running mate possible. I know that Joe Biden should be our president because he is the best person to serve our country at this moment. He has 40 years of experience and he's the only person who's actually helped guide the country through economic collapse in recent years. And we're going to face not only an economic collapse, but a collapse of our global health security system that has to be rebuilt. And he helped build the first one. And so I want him to be president. So I'm going to be unequivocal about that. And I'm going to answer the questions I'm given, but I'm not trying to run for anything because you can't. This is his choice. It has always been his choice. It will be his choice. And I look forward to supporting whomever he picks, not only as his running mate, but helping him serve to make sure that we get our country on the right track again. 
What strengths do you have that you think would round out a, a Biden presidential ticket? Vice President Biden is the top of the ticket and he will be the face and the voice and the leadership. When I'm asked the question, what I can do, I can point only to what I've done. I have been a very effective leader in that I have helped encourage voters who normally do not see themselves in the body politic to turn out. And turnout is critical. We have an economic depression and a healthcare depression that is settling over certain communities harder than anywhere else. I live in a state where we're, black people are 32% of the population, we're 54% of the deaths. And in the wake of COVID-19, we're going to see this play out across the country. We already know it's ravaging Native American communities. It's burdening Latino communities. We know that we need to encourage those communities to not simply be angry at what has been done, but to have hope about what's to come. And I've been fairly effective at getting communities that typically stay home to turn out. I tripled Latino turnout, tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout, increased youth participation by 139%, increased black participation by 40%, and I increased white participation in Georgia for the first time since Bill Clinton. And so I think that those are skills that I can bring to bear, whether I do so as a running mate or as someone who's just a strong advocate for the ticket, my responsibility is to make certain we win in November. You've touched a little bit about the importance of, of representation and kind of what that means in a lot of different ways. And you know, we obviously have more women in, in the race than ever. And un, you know, unfortunately, I would, I would argue, um, didn't really see them rise to the top. Um, you know, we don't see a lot of polling about potential vice presidential candidates, but um, there was a poll about a week ago looking at Wisconsin and Michigan voters that found you as the top choice for, for VP among Black voters and found Elizabeth Warren as the top choice overall. Um, when you look at those results, kind of taking polling with a grain of salt, uh, does that tell you anything about what voters in the Midwest are, are looking for uh, in, a, in a ticket? Voters in the Midwest are looking for the exact same thing that voters in the South are looking for, that any American is looking for. And that is a strong leader who has not only the capacity, but the intention of helping us recover and prepare. I am proud to be in, you know, as we say in the South, in high cotton, in the company of so many extraordinary women. And I do not believe that there is a person that Vice President Biden can choose who would not enhance the ticket. It's his choice. And my belief is that he resonates in the Midwest so strongly on his own that everything else that we add is going to be about making sure we boost turnout, boost gain, but the fundamentals are where we are. And this is a man who has proven himself time and again, the man from Scranton who takes the train to Delaware every day, but more than that, someone who has led on issues of economic recovery, on healthcare expansion, on making sure that women are protected. Those are the things we're looking for. And a running mate is responsible for helping him win and helping him govern. But ultimately, it's his choice to decide the kind of partnership he needs. I don't I don't I think it would be wrong for us not to mention that Vice President Biden is facing a sexual assault allegation from a former Senate staffer, you know, dating back to 1993. He hasn't himself addressed the allegation, um, but his campaign has denied it. Do you think he's responding appropriately to the allegation and, and does it concern you at all? 
I believe women need to be heard and I believe they need to be listened to. And those are two different things. I also believe that allegations should be investigated. The New York Times did a thorough investigation. They found that the allegations did not bear up. And I believe Joe Biden. I believe him when he says he did not do this. I believe his campaign when they point to this investigation, because women not only deserve to be heard, too often they're not. And so I am, I think that the approach they've taken, which is to call for that investigation, to support the New York Times review, and to hold out the responsibility for those allegations to be investigated was the right thing to do. And I think the conclusions drawn are also correct, which is that Joe Biden is an advocate for women who has stood up for us, who has made us proud, who has helped to protect women against violence. And I stand with him. Um, you've previously said you're you're not interested in um, returning to a, a legislative role, and who knows, you know, what it's very hard to predict anything in the future right now, given everything that's going on. But if it doesn't turn into a, a vice presidency for you, uh, what do you see kind of the, the path being going forward, and and what about the uh, executive roles has, has particularly interested you? When you're in politics, there's a tendency to see jobs as fungible. It's about going from one job to the next. I don't approach politics that way. One of the reasons my response to not becoming governor was to launch Fair Fight Action, Fair Fight 2020, Fair Count to focus on the census, um, the Southern Economic Advancement Project to focus on economic policies for the least economically resilient. Those are the things I do. And my responsibility is to find the best platform from which to pursue these responsibilities. Before, long before I got into office, I was registering voters, working on civic engagement. I was doing the things that I believe in, and I've been doing them for 25 years. Politics is one pathway to getting those things done. And my personal bent is action. When I see a problem, I, I believe in trying to fix it. And I've tried my best to fix these things from whichever platform I stood on. When I was a small business owner who saw my business collapse because we couldn't get access to capital, in the midst of the Great Recession, I started a company <laughs> that helped get capital to small businesses. And so what draws me to executive action is that I believe in the direct connection between thought and result. But I also believe in building infrastructure. And so often for the communities I'm the most concerned about, there is no investment in infrastructure. There is no long-term investment in strategy. I do not believe that poverty is permanent. And if you believe that it can be eradicated, you have the obligation to use every tool in the toolbox to try to dismantle it. I tried it through the legislative role. I was pretty good at it, but my responsibility in the legislature taught me that the best way to get this work done is to be in the executive branch. Because in a legislature, you can think about and you can put out good policies, but as we've seen happen in DC over the last four years, the best policies fall apart when you do not have the strong executive to get it done. How do you think, um, and this is just a, a really big, broad philosophical question, but I mean, as we're, as we're all kind of trying to, trying to look at the future and imagine what that looks like during or, or after this pandemic, um, how does that shape the way we think about government and democracy going forward? Right now we are watching 
nation states that had long been democratic slide into authoritarianism and autocracy. If you look at Hungary, if you look at Turkey, if you look at what's happened in India, taking crises and leveraging them to justify the erosion of democratic norms is the first step to authoritarianism. What I'm most concerned about is that the United States no longer stands at, as the leader in moving our world forward. It's not simply about being the world's policeman. It was that we were often the world's moral center. We believed in the common good and we were willing to leverage our resources to make it so. And unfortunately, under the current administration, we have abdicated that role. And what has stepped into the vacuum has been men, and it's entirely men, who have taken advantage of the fears of their people to justify stealing their independence and their freedom in favor of what seems like protection. But we know long-term it's not protective, and we know long-term it is not the right direction. And so I would like to see America in the future restore our role. We could lead a humanitarian mission that could go into those countries that are going to face COVID-19 for the next year or so. And we could be the leaders in making sure that they have access to the testing and the tracing and the treatment. We could help make certain that we leverage our production capacity to ensure that they have what they need, because that's who we are. That's what we've done in every major crisis since our inception. And we should not so easily give away the role that we can play. And that's what I hope we become in the future. Well, I know we've gone just a few minutes over our allotted time. So I just want to um, give you one more chance to touch on anything that we haven't asked you about or, or you know, any, any kind of last words that you would want to leave people with here. Well, I want to remi remind Wisconsin that we are in the midst of a census. And this census is as important as the election. And here's why. Elections allow us to pick who leads us for the next two years, next four years, next six years. The census determines the allocation of resources for the next decade for the next 10 years, and it also allocates power for the next 10 years politically. I don't necessarily believe that Wisconsin has been very happy with the last 10 years and the decisions about the allocation of power. If you were, congratulations. If you weren't, make sure you complete the census. Because if you are concerned about the lack of resources coming to your community, it was because your community was undercounted. And if you're concerned about the leaders who would send you out to die rather than fix the election cycle and process so that you could take advantage of safe and secure elections, then the only answer is to make certain new people get to make those decisions. And that happens both by voting in November and by completing your census. Go to my2020census.gov, complete your census, and tell everyone you know. Thank you so much for making some time to talk with us. We really appreciate it. And um, hope you're able to, at some point, get back to Wisconsin when, when all of this kind of settles down. Maybe. I look forward to it. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you both so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to Wedge Issues wherever you get your podcasts. And you should also check out our other Cat Times podcasts like The Mad Splainers and The Corner Table. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, you can find me on Twitter at jessieopie, or you can email me at jopoyan at madison.com. Thanks again for listening. Hope you're all staying safe and healthy. We'll see you next time. Wisconsin.
This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.